Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. For the United Kingdom, the 1920s were a decade shaped by the aftermath of World War I, or as it was known at the time, the Great War. 886,000 British soldiers died fighting in the trenches, devastating hundreds of thousands of families back home in the English countryside. Everyone in Britain was touched by the violence and destruction. Many prayed for their sons' safe return, and those who did come home were treated as heroes. The survivors were put on pedestals and allowed to get away with all sorts of misbehaviors, sometimes even criminal acts. Even someone like Eric Toome, the son of an Anglican reverend, could live a hedonistic life driven purely by money. Through charm and deception, young Eric swindled the British government and a few companies out of a small fortune. He lived a fast and free life, traveling from city to city, gallivanting with women, and purchasing luxury goods. Many who met him liked him, and some even described him as the sort of gentleman thief a reader might expect to find in a picaresque novel. Yet little did Eric realize his fast life would meet a fast end. His mysterious death and its strange circumstances proved to be so bizarre that even his reverend father would question his own deeply held religious convictions. Eric Toom's nightmarish end would only truly be understood when Eric's restless spirit called out from beyond the grave. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our only episode on the murder of Eric Toome. Despite being raised by a reverend, Eric Toome only served the god of cold, hard cash. His lifestyle eventually led to his disappearance, and he would only be found when he allegedly spoke to his mother after he'd been killed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Mrs. Toome found herself in the dark. Cold moisture clung to her skin. Stone walls phased into her vision. A deep chill set in her bones. And yet, she felt like she'd been here before. Oh, let me out! Water dripped from the ceiling and rose up around her ankles. She heard her feet splashing as she tried to move. Oh, let me out! Suddenly, her foot caught on something in the water. 
A shiver ran down her spine as her eyes drifted downwards. Just beneath the surface, she saw the desiccated corpse of a man. His eyes shot open and he lunged towards Mrs. Toon. His mouth moved and he spoke with the voice of her son. Let me out! Mrs. Toom woke up in her bed, drenched in sweat. Her husband, George Toom, looked at her, worry on his face. Oh, was it the same dream? <laughs> yes, but there was more. I saw a well this time, and our son was lying dead at the bottom of it. I know it's heresy, but I think his spirit... The dead cannot speak, so what if it's a demon using our son's voice to torment you? It's frightening, but it doesn't feel demonic. What if it's an angel? What if it's God? What if God's allowed our son to reach out just to have us find him? Those explanations seem like flights of fancy to me. The dreams have plagued me for months. They're tearing me apart, George. <sighs> If you really believe they're from our son, I'll choose to believe you too. I'll get someone else to lead the parish. We'll move to the city as soon as we're able, and we'll find our son. Reverend George Toome woke the next morning ready to uproot his entire life. He had dedicated himself to the Anglican Church, preaching in the small English village of Little Tew. He and his wife had lived simple, lovely lives— but they hadn't seen any sign of their son, Eric, in over a year. 28-year-old Eric had last visited them in January of 1922. He was known to travel quite a bit, and he had gone to Sicily shortly after seeing his parents. Their last correspondence with Eric occurred in mid-April 1922, when he sent them a letter about another trip he planned to take to Paris. I'm sure to have a splendid time in jolly old France. I've even ordered four new suits for the occasion. Please pray those lovely French women don't tear your son to pieces. <laughs> I'm sure we'd all prefer I marry an English gal anyways. Shortly after they received that letter, Eric's mother's nightmares began. By midsummer, she was convinced their son was dead. And by the next year, 1923, George finally believed her. Reverend George gave up his position in the church so he could search for his son. He and his wife moved from the small town of Little Tew to Sydenham, a suburb of London. He wasted no time tracking his son down. He arrived in town and found Eric's favorite tailor in his shop on Albemarle Street. Oh. <laughs> Welcome, welcome. Always good to see a new face. Uh, I assume you're looking for a suit? Actually, uh, I'm looking for four, but I'd imagine they'd be over a year old at this point, if you still have them, that is. I beg your pardon? Did you put in an order? I rarely forget a face, but I apologize if I've mistaken you. No, no, I did not place the order. My son did, Mr. Eric Tomb. Oh, Eric! Oh, it's been so long, I'd nearly forgotten. Well, I, well, I should still have them right. Uh, 
here they are. A little dusty, but that's what happens when you wait months to pick them up. Make sure your son knows this dust is his fault. <sighs> I'm afraid I can't. He's, um, gone missing, you see. <clears throat> the fact he never picked his suits up, well, that's just not like him. You really haven't seen him since April of 22? Uh, unfortunately, no. <sighs> Unfortunate indeed. Thank you for your time. Uh, wait! Um, your son gave me his banking information to pay for my services. Perhaps the chaps at uh, Lloyd's Bank can help you find him? That's awfully helpful, good sir. I'll be sure to ask. The visit to the tailor did not go as George had hoped, but it did provide him with an approximate timeline for his son's disappearance. Eric's trip was supposed to happen in late April of the previous year. If he never picked up his suits, he probably never made it to Paris. George decided his next best lead would be at the bank. If he could track Eric's spending, perhaps he could get a sense of where Eric was last seen before he disappeared. Yes, Eric Toome. I have good reason to believe he disappeared in mid-April last year. Well, Reverend, uh, I have good news for you. Eric's been in contact with us well past April. And actually, <laughs> his account's been overdrawn. Seems he's been a bit overeager as of late. Really? Would you mind showing me his latest letter? Absolutely. Um, here we go. Postmark June 22nd, 1922. June of last year, you say? <laughs> Let's see how it reads. I, Eric Toom, hereby grant my friend and business partner, Ernest Dyer, power of attorney over my account. He shall be free to access my funds at will. Oh, dear. Oh, dear? <laughs> I can see why you might find such a thing suspicious. But as you'll see at the bottom, his signature is there. This is all above board. Take a closer look, good sir. His signature was first written in pencil, then traced over in ink. Whoever wrote this had to practice my son's signature. I'm afraid it's a forgery. Oh, dear. Oh, dear indeed. The manager showed George every letter and check the bank had received from Eric since April. All of them were expertly made forgeries, and all of them pointed back to one man, Ernest Dyer. If George wanted to find his son, he knew he needed to find Ernest Dyer. The bank was unable to provide Dyer's address, but George knew exactly how to find it. He made his way to Eric's favorite barber, because at that time, a man's barber often knew the most about him. Clean shave and a nice trim, please. And while you're at it, would you happen to know my son, Eric Toom? He recommended your shop to me. Of course I know Eric. Dapper, your son. Real dapper. He was one of my regulars. Always threw his money around. Was real popular with the ladies. Though I think my cuts might have something to do with that. Uh, uh, real charming, too. Lots of fun to talk to. But now that I think about it, I haven't seen him in well over a year. What about a man named Ernest Dyer? Have you ever heard of him? But of course, Eric and him were business partners. 
They bought those old stables, the welcomes, and tried to train racehorses together. Place burnt down back in April of 21, but Dyer still lives out there, last I heard. The welcomes? Hmm. A, a little more off the top. Uh, thank you. With a clean cut and a new lead, George was determined to see his search through. However, his trip to the welcomes would be far less welcoming than he hoped. Coming up, George's hunt for Eric and Ernest takes a surprising turn. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to our story. By late summer of 1923, George Toome had discovered the address of his missing son, Eric's old business partner, Ernest Dyer. Dyer owned The Welcomes, a horse training ranch with a reputable past located south of London. As George approached The Welcomes, its acres of long green grass and rolling hills gave way to a burnt-out husk of a stable. Charred timbers and piles of soot stood where buildings should have been. A single home rose up from the ground, apart from the wreckage. George knocked on the door, and a worn-out woman in her late 20s answered. Sorry to bother you, ma'am. I'm looking for a man named Ernest Dyer. I was told he owns this, uh, establishment. Looking for my husband, eh? (laughs) Well, he won't find him here, and you won't find him anywhere. The man's dead. Oh, my. uh, I'm sorry for your loss. If you don't mind me asking, how did he die? Car accident late last year. Oh, how dreadful. Would you happen to know his business partner, Eric Toome? Eric hasn't been around here in ages. I think the lads had a falling out, to be honest. Last my husband spoke of Eric, he said Eric owed him about... A thousand pounds. That's quite the sum. (laughs) Perhaps this is a bit macabre of me to ask, but would you mind showing me to your former husband's grave? Oh, so you think I'm lying for him? You very well might be, yes. I can't show you the grave, but if I have to prove he's dead, I'll do it. We don't know how, but Mrs. Dyer eventually convinced George that her husband was truly dead. Even so, George left the welcomes with an eerie feeling. There was something familiar and dreadful about the place. He sensed Mrs. Dyer wasn't telling him the whole truth. But with Ernest gone, 
he didn't have many other questions he could ask. George had followed his leads all the way to the bitter end. He came to believe that Ernest Dyer had killed his son for money, but with Ernest dead, there was little he could do to prove it. He returned home to discuss his findings with his wife. I just, I don't know if we'll ever find him now. That scoundrel could have hidden Eric's body anywhere. Can't we go to the police? Surely they'll be able to help you search. Search where? The man died months after Eric disappeared. His body could be anywhere from here to Paris. I I don't know if I can handle this. Not knowing where he is. I know, dear. Just We'll just have to keep praying. God will carry us through this. Whether it was God or something else entirely, Mrs. Toome got another message the next time she laid down to rest. George! I saw him again, out in the Welcomes. The Welcomes? Yes, just as you described it. There's a well on that property, and our son is stuck at the bottom of it. Hmm. Don't you believe me? After all that you found, don't you believe? I'll speak with the police first thing in the morning. In September 1923, George Toome went to Scotland Yard to tell the detectives his tale and request help in his search for his son. He spoke with Superintendent Francis Carlin, one of the big four legendary detectives at Scotland Yard at that time. Along with three others, Francis had helped solve seemingly impossible cases. He was so good at his job, he even established the Scotland Yard Cabinet. The Cabinet was a complete overhaul of the Detective Bureau's internal organization, which allowed their investigators to more efficiently and effectively detect and investigate crime throughout the nation. If anybody could help George find Eric, it was Superintendent Francis Carlin. By Jove, Reverend! You found forged checks, a burnt-out business, and a plausible suspect. And you say all this started because of your wife's dreams? They're very vivid, sir. Whatever the cause, I think she sees the truth. My son is probably at the bottom of a well somewhere in the Welcomes. And you said his business partner's name was Ernest Dyer? Yes. His wife told me he died in a car accident, but I don't believe she was telling me the truth. Well... I have it on good authority he didn't. In fact, since you've been gracious enough to tell me a splendid story, allow me to do the same. The tale of law enforcement's latest run-in with the scoundrel, Ernest Dyer. To George's surprise, the detectives had last seen Ernest Dyer in November 1922, seven months after Eric's disappearance and ten months before George Toome brought the case to Scotland Yard's attention. This run-in started when businesses in Scarborough, a coastal vacation town approximately 200 miles north of London, notified the police of a man named James Fitzsimmons. Mr. Fitzsimmons had been going through town handing out fake checks. Everyone had bounced. To make matters worse, Fitzsimmons had put out classified ads in the newspaper. In these ads, Fitzsimmons offered to hire men of the highest integrity 
but only if they could pay him a substantial down payment first. The police recognized this as the work of a con artist, and they sent Detective Inspector Abbott to put a stop to Fitzsimmons' scams. On November 16, 1922, Detective Inspector Abbott tracked James Fitzsimmons down to the Bar Hotel. There, he found Fitzsimmons in the dining room, eating a meal. Abbott had the hotel manager bring Fitzsimmons into the lobby. <laughs> a police officer? The manager told me I had a guess, but I never imagined it would be a man of the law. Why would you want to see me? <laughs> Just here to have a little chat. The topic of which you might prefer to discuss in the privacy of your own room. Ah, keeping my propriety in mind, are you? That's quite considerate. Indeed. Care to show me the way? Of course, of course. It's right up here. Detective Abbott followed Fitzsimmons up the staircase. As they walked, Abbott noticed Fitzsimmons' hand reaching towards his pocket. Abbott wasn't sure what Fitzsimmons was reaching for, but he knew it wouldn't be good. He lunged forward and grabbed Fitzsimmons' arm. Hey, hey, no! No! Fitzsimmons tried to fight back. The two men struggled against each other on the steps until their fight brought them tumbling down. When they hit the ground, Abbott found himself lying on top. Suddenly, he heard a click. Then, a boom. Fitzsimmons stopped moving. Detective Abbott jumped to his feet to see blood streaming out from beneath Fitzsimmons' chest. He flipped Fitzsimmons over to find a revolver in his hand and a gunshot wound through his heart. Fitzsimmons had shot himself and died instantly. Detective Abbott was stunned. Criminals would sometimes commit suicide to avoid the hangman's noose, but Fitzsimmons was only wanted for fraud. At worst, he'd spend a year or two in prison. Fitzsimmons' actions didn't make sense. Unless, of course, there was more to the story. Detective Abbott continued on to Fitzsimmons' room alone. There he found an attaché case embroidered with the initials E.T. Inside the case, he found a passport and 180 checks, all of which belonged to Eric Toome. Detective Abbott was unaware that Eric Toome had been missing for seven months, so he didn't realize the significance of his discovery. But he could tell right away that Fitzsimmons had been using Eric's name to rack up credit. He continued to search the room and found another piece of the puzzle. He discovered two war medals stamped Lieutenant E. Dyer. He had revealed Fitzsimmons' real name, Ernest Dyer. And now, by his own hand, Ernest Dyer lay dead on the floor of the bar hotel. For nearly a year, police had wondered why a simple con artist would take his own life— but by September 1923, when George Toome brought his findings to Superintendent Francis Carlin, the pieces seemed to fall into place. As Superintendent Carlin would later write in his memoirs, 
There is not the slightest doubt in my mind that the reason for Dyer committing suicide was that he imagined that the inspector had come to arrest him for the murder of Eric Gordon Toome. He was not to know that the only charges against him were those of obtaining money by false pretenses and other frauds. He saw, no doubt, the scaffold looming up before him, and so he took his own life. Now that they knew what had happened to Ernest Dyer, there was only one step left to take. They needed to find Ernest's victim and prove that a murder had taken place. Next, a mother's dream leads police to a shocking discovery. Now back to the story. In early September 1923, Scotland Yard's famous detective, Superintendent Francis Carlin, brought a crew of men to the Welcomes Farm. The place belonged to the deceased Ernest Dyer, and Mrs. Toombs' dreams had convinced her they would find her son Eric's body at the bottom of a well somewhere on the property. The old horse ranch had burnt down, and even though Ernest Dyer's widow still lived in a cottage on the property, most of the acres had become overgrown with plant life. Tall grass obscured the ground, and vines wove themselves between the collapsed bricks and timbers of the stables. The officers dug through the wreckage looking for any sign of a cellar or a well. Most of the day had passed before Superintendent Carlin noticed four concrete slabs at one end of the paddock, hidden among the tall grass. Gentlemen, can a couple of you help me try to lift this concrete? I have a sneaking suspicion there's something underneath. The superintendent's hunch proved to be spot on. They moved the first of four slabs and discovered it was actually a lid for a cesspit. Cesspits are large holes in the ground designed to absorb liquid waste runoff. Their purpose is the opposite of a well, but they look startlingly similar to people who might not know the difference, like Eric Toombs' mother. The superintendent lowered a light into the cesspit to find it empty, its moist stone walls and dirt floor concealing nothing. But this was only the first of four. The men moved two more slabs to find two more cesspits, both of which were also empty. Finally, they moved the fourth and final slab. This cesspit had been packed full with bricks and rubble. That's awfully suspicious, don't you think, lads? I think it's time we grabbed the shovels. The men dug for hours, well past sundown. By the flickering light of the lantern, they descended into the earth. The labor was grueling and hard, but eventually they reached water. With bucket after bucket, they drained the cesspit until finally they saw it. A man's shoe stuck out from among the rubble, attached a skeletal foot. The police kept digging until they unearthed the man entirely. He was a skeleton dressed in a rotting suit. He had a hole in the back of his skull, and four shotgun pellets still rattled about inside. As they searched the body, they found cufflinks, a tie pin, and a golden watch. 
Mr. and Mrs. Tomb, do you recognize these belongings? <gasps> Those are his. Those are our sons. He really did speak to us from beyond the grave. <gasps> we finally let him out. In order to explain the events that led up to Eric's death, Inspector Carlin spoke to everyone he could find who knew him. With thorough detective work, he was able to piece together the story. Ernest Dyer and Eric Toome had both been soldiers, wounded fighting on the front lines of World War I. They likely met at some point in 1917, after they both got hired to work as administrators for the Royal Air Force. The two men hit it off. Both were charming and debonair. They even looked somewhat similar. They had high ambitions, deep desires for wealth, and no moral standards holding them back. Ernest, uh, have you noticed that nobody has been double-checking these invoices you've been approving? Why would they? With the war over, nobody wants to look over the boring paperwork. Of course they don't! <laughs> so, let's say I invented a company and submitted an invoice. I could approve it. And nobody would know the difference. How do you feel about making a little money with me? 50-50, yeah? 50-50. The young men set their plan into action, and by the time the office closed in 1919, Eric and Ernest had swindled the government out of thousands of pounds, enough to buy a large house at the time. The young men were living in hog heaven. They spent the next two years traveling throughout Europe, spending their windfall and performing more elaborate cons. For his part, Ernest had always wanted to get into horse racing, he saw an opportunity to buy the Welcomes farm and convinced Eric to go into legitimate business with him. It's not known how much Eric invested, but in 1920, Eric and Ernest purchased the Welcomes for 5,000 pounds. As time passed, raising horses proved to be too much work for Ernest, and it cost him too much money. By early 1921, he was nearly broke, and he wanted a way out. I thought you loved horse racing. Racing, not raising. I'm tired of it, but I think I've got a way out. I've insured the place for 12,000 pounds. All I need is your help cashing in. 50-50? 50-50. During the second week of April, Ernest Dyer sent his wife and kids on vacation to Scotland and promised he'd join them later. He spent April 12th dousing the farm in gasoline. With the stables, barns, and other buildings covered in fuel, Ernest hopped aboard an afternoon train to meet up with his family. A few hours later, Eric Toome arrived at the farm with a simple match. He set the whole place ablaze. Eric returned to London that night and joined a party with some friends who could provide him with an alibi. The next day, neighbors contacted Ernest Dyer and told him the terrible news. Feigning trauma, Ernest filed his insurance claim and waited to cash in. Of course, insurance agents found his claim peculiar. They checked the deeds and found he had only purchased the welcomes for 5,000 pounds, 
so they weren't sure how he had been approved for a 12,000-pound payout. An agent arrived at the farm where he found burnt-out gasoline cans. It was an obvious attempt at insurance fraud, and the company refused to pay Ernest his claim. This drove Ernest up the wall. He was financially ruined, and he assumed Eric was too. Both men spent the next year practicing small cons across the country and in Europe, but Ernest quickly used up his credit, putting him in dire financial straits. How are you avoiding the debt collectors? They won't leave me alone. (laughs) Debt collectors? Ernest, my friend, I'm simply not in debt. Not in... How are you not in debt? I guess I don't spend as much as you do. How much do you have, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, just a couple thousand pounds. I could fill my garage with Model T's if I really wanted to, but that's more like something you would do. And you're the one in debt, aren't you? (laughs) I suppose it is. I'm a beggar, and you're a sterling example of a well-to-do fellow. Feels a little less like 50-50, if I might say so myself. Yes. (laughs) Not everything has to be 50-50, you know. Ernest was blown away by Eric's wealth. He possessed a hefty chunk of change. The more Ernest thought about Eric's money the more he wanted it. He even convinced himself that Eric owed him money, and he came up with a scheme to get it. He told Eric he had a plan for another con. He asked Eric to meet him at his farm to put it into action. On April 21st, 1922, Eric arrived. You're gonna love it, Eric. Just wait till you see it. I can't wait. You said it's in the cesspit? The one on the right. Ugh, my boots come unlaced. Um, uh, carry on ahead. With pleasure. I can hardly see down there. Don't worry, you'll see it soon enough. With a single blast from a shotgun, Ernest Dyer killed Eric Toom. He threw Eric's body to the bottom of the cesspit and covered him up with stones and rubble. Over the next few months, Ernest traveled across the country, writing letters to Lloyd's bank and cashing checks in Eric's name. He emptied Eric's account and spent the money on lavish goods and then racked up debts using Eric's credit. He carried on like this until November 16, 1922, when Detective Abbott came to arrest him. Rather than face justice at the hands of the law, Ernest Dyer shot himself and joined his victim in the grave. The courts found Ernest Dyer posthumously guilty of murder. Had he been alive, he would have been sentenced to death. George Toome and his wife returned to their simple lives in the small town, and George returned to the fold as a reverend, Yet the stories of their son's death made waves around town. Hey, aren't you the preacher whose wife speaks to the dead? (laughs) That old poppycock. Uh, You shouldn't believe every rumor you hear. Don't try and trick me. Your son's ghost helped you find his body. My husband's expert sleuthing and the Lord's holy guidance helped us find our son. 
If you'd like to hear more about the Lord and how he can guide you, you're welcome to join us at the parish on Sunday mornings. Uh, good day now. May the Lord bless you as he's blessed us. For the rest of their lives, the tombs denied the tales about her prophetic dreams. After all, a preacher's wife speaking to the dead was not good for their reputation. It came a little too close to witchcraft for the congregation to be comfortable. But Superintendent Francis Carlin had no such compunctions. In his memoirs and to the press, he was adamant that Eric Toome would not have been found if his mother hadn't dreamed of his death first. Those nightmarish images of her boy at the bottom of a well were the only things that brought Eric Toome back into the light. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on the murder of Eric Toome, amongst the many sources we used, we found Ghosts and Gallows by Paul Adams and Reminiscences of an Ex-Detective by Francis Carlin, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Giles Hofseth, edited by Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Dinesh Alvis, Zelda Diana Black, Brian Kim McCormick, Laith Walshlager, Charlie Wess, and Jen Wong. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>